Welcome back to the conversation. We are joined here by Dave Dayan, the executive editor of the American Prospect, who has done an extraordinary amount of reporting on the incoming Department of Justice. We're going to talk about that today. Uh, in particular, let me start with something that people might have might have caught in the news, and that is uh, Betsy DeVos uh, having a kind of a uh, white knight moment from the Biden administration. You know, she was ordered by a judge to uh, testify or or give a deposition to uh, plaintiffs in a, in a lawsuit alleging that she had uh, un unfairly and arbitrarily screwed them uh, around their uh, the, you know, they're basically trying to get refunds on these from these scam for profit colleges. Judge said, yes, you have to you have to sit for this deposition. You're, you're no longer secretary of education. The Biden's Justice Department said oh, not so fast uh, and went and went to bat for DeVos. Brian Boynton uh, was the lead attorney on that from the Department of Justice. What do we know about Brian Boynton and, and what does this say about Merrick Garland's Department of Justice in the early stages? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Merrick Garland is not the attorney general yet, but mm -hmm. the Biden team is firmly in charge of who is involved in uh you know, taking over in a temporary capacity, the Department of Justice. So when you see something like this happen, it's a result of people who Garland is likely to retain and, and uh, whether they're career officials or political officials who don't need Senate confirmation who are installed by the Biden administration, that's who's running the show right now at DOJ. So uh, you can, even though Garland isn't attorney general, you can see these actions as indicative of the Biden administration's thinking and Merrick Garland's thinking. Presumably he has pretty, you know, a decent amount of say over who is running the department right now uh, into, you know, what, what they want to do at DOJ. And you're seeing a lot of people like Boynton who uh, comes from Wilmer Hale, which is this, uh, sometimes we call it a white shoe law firm. Uh, this is a, uh, a corporate defense firm that has a lot of corporate clients, um, Boynton, no different in that respect, uh, who is put into this position uh, and could be there for, you know, a, a number of weeks, if not months. I mean, uh, the, 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 you know, we don't know when Garland is going to get a, a, a hearing on the floor. And we certainly don't know when his deputies are. Some of them haven't even been you know, nominated yet. So these acting officials are going to be in charge for, for a while. And uh, what they're doing with DeVos, essentially shielding her from the consequences of failing student borrowers, uh, that's a really bad sign. And Boynton himself, as I understand it, had represented for-profit schools in the past. Wilmer Hale, uh, Wilmer Hale cert certainly has, particularly University of Phoenix, and I believe the, the kind of umbrella group that represented a lot of the different for-profit schools across the board. Yet you, you saw this decision by the uh, Biden uh, Department of Justice to defend Betsy DeVos heralded by the kind of Washington legal establishment, uh, almost like a, you know, good for John Adams defending the the British after the Boston Massacre type type of thing that that this was what you know the Department of Justice ought to be doing that it was being brought back to its 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 rightful place in in the political ecosystem. What did you make of that that response? 
Yeah, I mean, the Biden team rhetorically has done a lot of that work, too. I mean, at a town hall the other day, uh, talking about uh, whether or not to, to prosecute Trump for the Capitol riot. And Biden says, that's up to the Justice Department. I, uh, you know, we're going to get back to the Justice Department making these decisions. But, you know, Biden is making decisions on who is going to be making those calls. Uh, and, you know, if, if this is any indication of how they are going to look at the previous administration, I wouldn't expect anything to come out of that. Uh, and the sort of lauding uh, from the Washington establishment is really almost a sigh of relief that uh, anything that was done in the last four years is not going to face any kind of major sanction from Maine justice. Now, they might from other areas, New York Attorney General's office or, or, or elsewhere, but uh, it, it's essentially, I mean, you could almost read this as sort of a, a, a warning signal or a lack of warning, mm -hmm. signal, as it were, uh, that you're going to be okay. Uh, we're not going to force Betsy DeVos into uncomfortable situations. We're not going to force other members of the Trump administration into uncomfortable situations. So uh, it's 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 pretty concerning. And it's something that's not really on the radar of a lot of people, because, you know, who really obsesses over the acting, uh, you know, assistant attorneys general and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's it's significant. Right. And, and it's it's interesting because in a lot of different places in Biden's cabinet, he has actually surprised progressives by the choices that he's that he's made on the commissions and also the CFPB. Uh, you would have thought that, you know, especially given what you saw this summer from Black Lives Matter and, and the, the direction that the Democratic Party has been taking in, in recent years around justice issues, that the, the DOJ wouldn't be the place that you'd, that you'd have to worry about that as much. But it almost seems like in kind of trolling Republicans by going with Merrick Garland, they, I don't know if it was inadvertent or if it was a feature of, of the choice, but Merrick Garland is this creature of the Washington legal establishment. He's one of the most well-respected members of that establishment, which, you know, so what he ended up doing is bringing with him all of these people uh, who were his interns and his deputies in the 1980s and 1990s. And those kinds of people have spent the intervening two decades cycling in and out of the Justice Department and these white shoe law firms doing, doing corporate work. And so, you know, he knows them as, as these, uh, you know, bushy tailed, uh, brilliant Ivy Leaguers who were 28 when he, they were working for him, they, you know, they spent the last 20, 30 years getting extremely rich on, on, on the backs of working people across the country doing legal work for, for corporations. Are, are, are you seeing any, any pushback uh, on this? Or do you think that Merrick Garland is just going to be able to kind of call the shots because he's been so lionized um, across the, the spectrum of the Democratic Party? Uh, I, I don't think you're seeing a lot of scrutiny on this stuff right now. Um, uh, you know, uh, it, it, there, there's Garland isn't in place and maybe there's an expectation that he's not driving this process just yet, even though he probably is. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of someone that we both have written about, which is uh, Susan Davies. So she was um, a, a deputy to Garland when he served in the Justice Department back in the 1990s. And uh, in those intervening years, as you said, uh, she uh, you know, went to a, a big time law firm and worked for Facebook. 
uh, among other uh, organizations, including pharmaceutical companies. But um, uh, she was seen as a, a leading choice to uh, be the assistant attorney general for antitrust. And of course, there's a major Facebook lawsuit going on right now at the Justice Department. And this would be bringing in someone who would have to immediately recuse themselves from that lawsuit uh, because they have in the past worked for that company. Um, what we know now is that, uh, and, and we know, we have, a, we have a pretty good sense that Garland was pushing for Davies to become assistant attorney general for antitrust. We do know that, uh, you know, her bio on her corporate law page and her email have, have started to bounce back. Uh, so it seems like she's already there in some capacity at justice, just hasn't been named yet. Uh, but, um, you know, may not, may or may not be the assistant attorney general. So that's an example right. of someone in this position. Um, you know, I, I think that, Initially, when the justice picks were put out, there were a couple good names uh, running the Civil Rights Division, for example. Um, uh, uh, people like Kristen Clark from the Lawyers Committee um, and uh, uh, I believe Benita Gupta was also uh, uh, named. So there was sort of, sort of some hopefulness around at least those kinds of issues involving racial justice, that there would be a sea change at DOJ. But on the corporate law side, right, on the criminal white collar law side, uh, it could be business as usual. And I think that's something that really uh, progressives need to speak out about. Right. And Susan Davies, our, our reporting suggested she was going to uh, be a deputy of his either way, whether or not she gets the AAG position for antitrust. So her leaving doesn't necessarily mean that she's getting the antitrust position, but she, she still might. And so uh, real quickly, last question, you know, what, what's your read? at this point on who's going to end up uh, in charge of the antitrust division and and also at the, the FTC, which has kind of dual oversight there. I think it's pretty up in the air. I mean, Davies uh, certainly uh, is, is a top candidate. We saw Renata Hess, uh, who had worked for uh, Google, also is a top candidate. Uh, she then sort of dropped out. There's a guy named Jonathan Cantor, who's more of a progressive uh, reformer on these issues. Uh, who might get that job. But it's uh, it's it's kind of under question. And, and you know, uh, antitrust reformers have done a pretty good job of, of, of being in that fight and, and, and trying to to, you know, model who is going to get that position. Other other ones might not be as uh, as, uh, you know, other parts of the Justice Department might not uh, have as much scrutiny and, and therefore you get what you get. All right. Dave, Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the conversation. Thank you. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm joined here by Hassan El-Tayeb, who is the lead Mideast lobbyist for the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Hassan, welcome to the conversation. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Ryan. So let me start by getting your reaction to uh, President Joe Biden's first kind of foreign policy declaration that he was going to end, quote unquote, support for offensive operations in, in the war in Yemen. What's, what's the reaction been to that? And, and what, did you, what did you take from that, uh, that, that announcement? Great question. So one, I would say this is the result of years and years of advocacy from the grassroots led by Yemeni Americans around the country, faith leaders, 
uh, you know, just grassroots all over. And I think it's a tremendous win in the power of what advocacy can do if you sustain it over time and force members of Congress to take hard votes on things like Yemen war powers and resolutions of disapproval to block weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. We may not have been able to pass it through the Trump administration, but it brought us to this moment. So I think it's really significant. Um, but it also, there are a bunch of remaining questions that we have. What does offensive operations actually mean? Will this include U.S. support, if any, for the blockade on Yemen? Will this include spare parts transfers? Um, so there's some remaining questions. We also don't know exactly what defensive means and what um, you know, the original pretext for us being involved in the war in Yemen was a defensive uh, move by the Obama administration. So there are some remaining questions that have to be answered. And we're working with members of Congress and other NGOs to try to get clarity right now. And that's what's needed. Right. right. There hasn't really been a, a war that one side has called offensive basically since World War II, um, which is if I recall correctly, that's right around the time that we changed the name of the War Department to the Defense Department. That was kind of the signal that we were about to become uh, an, an empire. So you're right that you can't really draw a whole lot from defense and, and offense. But is that being too is that being too cynical? I mean, how how is how is the announcement being received in the region? Yeah, so. I can speak for myself. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think we've moved the Democratic Party. We've moved Republicans as well. And we're, the conversations I'm having on the Hill right now are way different than the conversations I was having four years ago. That's significant. Mm -hmm. uh, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, you know, is is been consistently putting things out there like joint resolutions of disapproval to block the uh, Saudi weapons sales. So again, you know, just the conversations we're having are just way different. And that's putting us in a good place. I think there's a lot of skepticism in Yemen right now. They say, okay, well, you know, what does this actually mean? The, you know, airstrikes are still occurring. There were airstrikes this week. Um, so, you know, support for the war doesn't necessarily mean an end to the war. And we also have to restore humanitarian aid. We have to bring an end to the blockade, find a peaceful settlement, a ceasefire negotiation. You know, so, so much really remains. But these are really critical initial steps that I'm cautiously optimistic about. You're also seeing the UN raise an alarm about a, a recent Houthi offensive. Um, that they're saying could exacerbate the humanitarian crisis. Do you think this this Houthi offensive is is somehow connected to Biden's announcement? Them seeing like, well, it may, maybe this is ending soon, so we need to gobble up as much territory as possible so that we're in a stronger position at the negotiating table. Or do you think that those are those are disconnected and that this this offensive was was coming anyway? Well, this offensive has been going on for about a year. So I, you know, I see that in the context of, yeah, it's been a long time coming. Uh, the, the Houthis have been trying to take Marib, this oil-rich government in Yemen, which is a key stronghold for Hadi and, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, UN-recognized government in Yemen. So I think, uh, but the fact that it's coming so close to this announcement obviously gives you pause. You know, I, I think it's, you know, a tragedy to see any Yemenis being killed, by whether it's the Saudi UAE-led coalition or being done by uh, Ansar Allah, a.k.a. the Houthis. And, you know, we're, that's why we're doing so much work to try to, you know, work through the U.N. and support U.N.-led peace negotiations so we can bring an end to this conflict. 
how how does that happen? Like what what are the next what are the next steps um, that are going to you know potentially actually bring this to an end? Yeah, a really important question. So there's you know there's only so much the U.S. can do, but there's still a lot more we can do. <laughs> um, w- one thing that I think is really critical in this short window of time between now and March 1, where the UN is hosting another donor summit to try to you know, restore and expand humanitarian funding to, to Yemen, is that we need to end our suspension, our USAID suspension of humanitarian aid that started in March under the Trump administration. So that, that's one, that's a huge advocacy push right now. And folks can let their members know and their senators know that um, that we wanna see aid restored and expanded to all parts of Yemen. We need to get uh, Tim Lenderking and members of Congress to publicly call out uh, the Saudi UAE blockade on Yemen, which has cut off the flow of food, fuel, and medicine, and which is really perpetuating the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Right now, there are uh, 16 million people on the brink of famine. The UN is claiming that we've got 2 million children living, you know, basically, the, if things don't change, you're going to see malnutrition and possible death of so many kids in Yemen. So that's also key. Last point I'll, I'll make is that We also need uh, a robust peace process through the UN. And I think that's gonna require a new UN Security Council resolution that's not just so focused on the Houthis, but also focused on the, you know, all warring parties and trying to call for a nationwide ceasefire and end to the blockade and end to humanitarian obstruction of all kinds. um, And for the entire international community to stop selling weapons and providing military support for any warring party in Yemen. So, speaking of those warring parties, in in 2019, United Arab Emirates announced that they were kind of withdrawing troops uh, from the war, but there's no real evidence that they've kind of stopped support of the war in a variety of of different different ways. Um, How does the the new relationship um, between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the kind of ostensible allies on here, who, who are now kind of at loggerheads over the issue of Qatar and, and, and some other you know, strategic questions. How, how does the friction between those two um, play into how uh, this is going to un- unfold? You know, that, that's a good question. It, it sort of remains to be seen, uh, seen in some ways. You had the Riyadh agreement that sort of brokered a, you know, a settlement between the Southern Transitional Council, which are backed by the UAE, and the Hadi government, which is backed by Saudis. At one point in the war, they were using, both using U.S.-made weapons to kill each other, which is, it's kind of, you know, I mean, that I've heard people say that Yemen is where coalitions, you know, go to get broken apart. And um, so, I, like I said, I think it remains to be seen. You know, we're focused really on the UN-led negotiations. I think it's really critical that we get that new uh, Security Council resolution and that we work with Martin Griffiths uh, to do everything we can to support um, you know, a ceasefire by all parties and a negotiated settlement that not just includes the warring parties, but includes all parts of Yemeni society. We got to make sure that civil society and women and girls are also at the table when these talks are happening. You, you also recently had these these reports uh, in the Intercept about uh, the the meeting between UAE Ambassador Yusuf Al Oteba and Representative Ro Khanna, who was a lead sponsor of the the Yemen War Powers Resolution, in which Khanna said that 
Oteba raised his voice at him, um, you know, yelled at him uh, during the meeting. Oteba has denied that and has since invited Kana onto his own podcast to, to bridge their differences. Kana has said he will go on, but only if the UAE can, can you know, force the release of, of uh, Adel al-Hassani, a, political, journal, a journalist political prisoner held in, in Yemen. Um, what, what, what did you what did you make of, of that kind of uh, diplomatic dust up between between Khan and Oteba? It was really unfortunate uh, if the reports are true. And I have no reason to doubt uh, Representative Rokana. He's a person of great integrity and he's done so much uh, to end U.S. support for the Saudi UAE led war in Yemen. So, you know, I, I tend to, you know, believe Rokani is a trusted ally in the peace movement here. And it's really unconscionable that anybody would talk to a member of Congress like that, especially an ambassador from the United Arab Emirates. I think it it shows a certain amount of decadence. And I, I just I think it's really unfortunate. I think the way uh, Rep Khanna handled it was, you know, by saying that, yes, I'll potentially go on your podcast if you release this journalist, I think. Uh, was pretty savvy on his part, and uh, it remains to be seen what's going to ultimately happen. But at the end of the day, the UAE has been a, a major party to the war in Yemen. They've perpetuated violence. They've transferred U.S. weapons to al-Qaeda affiliates on the ground in Yemen. They've run secret prisons and torture sites. They have plans to annex and occupy parts of southern Yemen. And, uh, you know, they've been supporting airstrikes as well. So it's really important that you know, we do everything we can to hold them accountable and cut off support for their war in Yemen. Right. Hassan El Tayeb, uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the conversation. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate uh, the Young Turks for all the great journalism over the years and giving activists like myself and others a voice in this.